It's a privilege to join you on this anniversary weekend. I would like to invite you to turn in Scripture to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. And I shall begin by reading the entire psalm. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased. Lord, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha! Aha! be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes casual readers of the psalm treat each psalm as an individual pearl on a string. But pretty often in the psalms, they are grouped together so that the thought flows from one psalm to another psalm to another psalm and so on. In this instance, Psalm 37 underscores the importance of waiting on the Lord. And then the application of this waiting on God theme is worked out in painful self-examination in Psalms 38 and 39. And then you come to Psalm 40, our psalm, And here, at least initially, the gloom is lifted. There is a triumphant outcome. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. That brings us to the first of the two divisions in the psalm. Verses 1 to 10, joyful praise to the God who helps. It will be useful, I think, to follow the flow of thought that God has given to us in four points. Number one, personal testimony. Verse 1 bursts with a certain kind of relief and delight. The word patiently is probably too weak. It's too static. Okay, I waited patiently. It came. That's not the idea at all. It's, I waited perseveringly. I stuck it out. And the Lord heard my cry. And he answered me. What was it that the Lord saved David from? Well, it's described metaphorically in verse 2. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, 
out of the mud and mire. The picture is of something like quicksand, floundering helplessness, horror at an inevitable outcome. Now, what it's referring to in his life, that's the metaphor. What it's referring to in his life, quite frankly, we don't have a clue. Could be sickness. Could be military attack on the small nation. It could be his own sin. It could be disappointment and pain. We, we just don't know. And it's a good thing we don't know. Because if we did know, we might think that the only way we could legitimately apply this text to us today is if we go through exactly the same thing. But if you live with a metaphor, then you can apply it in lots of different ways. It's a bit like the way the Apostle Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of his thorn in the flesh. You can narrow down what that thorn in the flesh is likely to be, down to about seven or eight things. But beyond that, it's pretty hard to get very specific. And um, that's a good thing, because uh, we might have quite a lot of different thorns in the flesh and still find the same thing that the apostle learned. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. So what it is that David faced here, we really don't know. But it must have been pretty awful for him to use imagery like this. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. And in this case... God set his feet on a rock and gave him a firm place on which to stand. Now, you have to recognize, of course, that sometimes in Scripture, that's not the way God helps us. God helps us instead, sometimes, by simply adding more grace. That was so regarding Paul's experience of what he calls a thorn in the flesh. Again, we don't know what that thorn was, but it must have been pretty awful because in the preceding verses, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about all the times that he was beaten with rods and shipwrecked and sometimes hungry and despised and, and the challenges of, uh, of, of churches that sometimes uh, held him in contempt and the times he was lashed. and He, he talks about all of those things and, and, and seems uh, to handle them very well. And now in chapter 12, he's got a really tough one whatever it was, a thorn in the flesh. And we're told that he prayed diligently three times that the Lord would take it away. After all, the Apostle Paul had prayed for others and they had been healed. And what God says to him basically is, not going to do it. You've still got the thorn. And you're going to keep having it. I'm going to give you something else instead. I'm going to give you grace. And so precious is that gracious strength to the Apostle Paul that he's prepared to thank God for the thorn. He will glory, he says, in his weakness in order that he might know something of Christ's power and strength. So whether the Lord responds by taking away the thorn, or to change the metaphor, taking you out of the slime and putting you on a firm place, or the Lord responds instead by adding grace, it's still the Lord's response. Here it is a firm place on which to stand. What you can't help but notice about David's testimony, however is that he focuses attention less on himself and his experience than on God. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth. This new song language is used often in the prophets to, to refer to some fresh experience of God's grace. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Do you know there are some people who tell their testimonies in such a way that quite frankly, all of the focus is on them. Boy, you should have seen what a rotten sinner I was before the Lord touched me. Let me tell you how rotten a sinner I was. And it goes on and on and on. And somehow all the focus is on the individual. But here, yes, David has been rescued from the slimy, miry bog and put on a fresh place to stand. He gives his testimony. But then his mouth is full of praise that he returns to God and many shall see it and hear and put their trust in him. Do, do, do you see? There's a way even of giving a testimony that redounds to the glory of God. 
So that's the first part, personal testimony. Second, public principle, verses 4 and 5. It is as if David wants to extract a general public principle from his experience of grace. In fact, if you look closely, there is a word link between the first three verses and the next two. So, the first three verses, the personal testimony end, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Then in verse 4, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And now, instead of it being a personal testimony, it's worded as a third-person public principle. There is a broader thing to learn from David's own very personal experience of God's grace when God took him out of the miry bog. There is a broader thing. That thing is, blessed is the one, blessed is anyone, blessed is everyone who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. That causes him to reflect on God's wider goodness in the past. He says, many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. Do you know one of the things that happens when you are going through really, really, really difficult times? I don't care whether it's cancer treatment or loss of a spouse or a child or getting sacked or some relationship with real tension in it or even opposition, persecution at work because of your faith. You know, one of the things that happens when you face these kinds of things, is that you sort of sink down into yourself. You, you, you can't see very clearly beyond your, medium, your immediate suffering. Those who have been through severe cancer, cancer treatment, know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just hard to see anybody else's suffering. You're going through so much of it yourself. And your horizons shrink. It's harder to think about world evangelism when you're fighting chemo. It, it's hard to, to, to think about bringing up the next generation when you're struggling to get through that day. And when you're in the mire of deep despair, it, it's, it's hard to see out of the bog. All, all you can think of is that there are some days you'd rather drown in it and get it over with. But once the Lord has taken you out of it, after you've passed through it, and he's put your feet on a solid rock again, you start looking around and smelling the roses. And you begin to say, you know, the Lord really did sustain me in all of that. In fact, when I stop to think about it, I have so very, very much for which to be grateful. And your vision gets recalibrated and you can begin to see bigger pictures all over again. That, that's what's happened to David here. He, he was floundering in a hopeless bog. And, and now he says, many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, none can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, there would be too many to declare. That's just not where he was a few months earlier. It reminds me of another passage. Psalm 139. Here David begins in fair despair. If I say, verse 11, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will be dark, not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Then this, verse 13. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So here is David now contemplating how God has been sovereign over him even while he is in the womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you and I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's how sweeping God's sovereignty is. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Do you, you see, in the context, that's not just saying, well, you're omniscient and I'm not, so you've got a lot more thoughts than I do. It's saying something more than that. 
It's saying, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. That is, all the thoughts that you had of my entire life, day by day, moment by moment, all of those thoughts, when I look at all of your goodness that I've experienced now as I look back, how precious are all of these thoughts to me, Lord God. How vast is the sum of them. For not just thoughts of me, but of my wife and my children and my parents and my cousins and my third cousin twice removed and my brothers and sisters in Christ and all the people in my local church and then all the people in the world and, and not in this generation only, but in other generations and different tribes and languages and people and tongues and, 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 and your thoughts uh, em- embrace them all. It, it, nothing is by accident. There, there is a sovereignty to your sway bound up in your own understanding that I can just barely understand. For those of you who were here yesterday, we saw Job forced to reckon with the same notion of a sovereign God who understands so much more than we do. So here is the, the writer David turning from his own personal testimony to a public principle. All of this because of what God has planned for his people. Third, personal self-dedication. Verses 6 to 8. What is the only proper response for such deliverance? Offer a sheep? Or if you don't have much money, a couple of pigeons? Or if you're a little better off, slaughter a bull? Is that an adequate response? David understands the significance of these questions. He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You see, rich people can always pay God off with an extra sacrifice, a little more in the offering plate. No, no, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But my ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. In other words, the only adequate response to the sheer grace of God in our lives is Self-sacrifice. It's offering ourselves to God, not paying God off with an animal. It's not as if David is here abolishing the entire sacrificial system prescribed by the Mosaic law, but the, the trouble with a prescribed sacrificial system is you can go through the motions of it and never give yourself to God. This is a kind of New Old Testament equivalent of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, those of you who've been reading your Bible a long time will remember that there is a translation challenge in chapter 40, verse 6, the second line. Our translations render it in different ways. Sometimes, but my ears you have pierced, or my ears you have opened. What's what's going on here? But my ears you have pierced is one way you could render the Hebrew. My ears you have pierced. What might that mean? Well, some have thought that it might refer to the ear-piercing testimony, the ear-piercing ceremony that you find described in Exodus 21. In the ancient world, people could become slaves for different reasons. In America, slavery was brought about and inflicted on only one race. And it was brought about by raids and trading in the west coasts of Africa, and the slaves were transported across the Atlantic. But in the ancient world, slavery could come about because of military raids and so on, but it could also come about because there were no bankruptcy protection laws. So if you borrowed money, for example, and then the business went belly up, you had no choice but to sell yourself and maybe your family into slavery. You had no choice. And and because of that, therefore, slaves were not associated with just one race. There were 
Africans who were slaves and Africans who were free and Africans who were noble. There were Jews who were slaves and Jews who were free and Jews who were noble. There were Italians who were slaves and Italians who were free and Italians who were noble. There were Germans who were slaves. There were Englishmen who were slaves. And there were Englishmen who were free and there were Englishmen who were noble and so on. In the Roman Empire, some were slaves because they had suffered military defeat or they had been captured in a raiding party. But some were slaves instead because of bankruptcy. That meant, too, that sometimes... A slave could be a really skilled lawyer or a skilled accountant or the like who had had rather bad luck when it came to finances. And so sometimes you had rich people who did not have that much education who had slaves who were really brilliant scholars and so on who did all their bookkeeping and their management and so on, but they were slaves. And that goes back even to Old Testament times. So that in Israel... When somebody became a slave because of bankruptcy, it wasn't really slavery. It's what we would call indentured servitude. That is to say, you became a slave for a set period of time, but on the seventh year, you were supposed to be released. So it was payback time, in other words. You became an employee who couldn't go anywhere else. You had to do what the master said for the seven years, and then at the end of the seven years, you were set free again. But suppose, suppose you come to the end of the seven years, and it turns out that during those seven years, you've had a very good owner. Made sure you and your family had a place to live and was fair in his dealings. and You, you actually uh, were bringing up your family quite nicely and whatever accommodation he provided, you had plenty to eat and you were decently clothed and so on. You come to the end of your seven years and he's going to set you free, but you look around and the economy is running rather poorly Unemployment is at about 30%. And you think, if I'm suddenly set free, what am I going to do? So you might decide in that case, hey, I'm better off being a slave than I am in an economy that's absolutely bust. And so there was, in Exodus 21, an ear-piercing ceremony. The master would take you, once this negotiation was terminated to the door of his house and he would take a sharp awl and pierce your ear against the door. As if to say, from now on, you belong to this house. So some have said, maybe that's what's going on here. David says, I'm your slave. My ear you have pierced. I'm yours. That's the only adequate response to all the grace you've given me. Well, that makes sense. But David, interestingly enough, says, my ears you have pierced. Whereas all we know from the ear-piercing ceremony in the ancient world was that it was one ear. This is my ears, plural, you have pierced. But there's another way of taking the same verb. Instead of taking it, my ears you have pierced, it could be, my ears you have dug. Or we would say in English, my ears you have dug out. And if you say, what does that mean? You haven't met my mother. <laughs> my mother was born in London. She was a cockney, bound within the sound of, born within the sound of bow bells. And she had quite a number of expressions, um, the origin of which we never did find out exactly. And one of them was this one. If, if, if we kids were not behaving properly, she, she, she might well say, oh, dig out your ears. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that one or if you've ever said that to your kids or had your parents say it to you, but, but that was certainly said to me. I'm pr pretty sure that Jim could testify that he heard the same sort of thing. Now, that did not mean you're supposed to get a spade and start digging out your ears or even a small spatula or the like. It was a, a metaphor for, for listening up. Pay attention. I've already spoken. Dig out your ears so that you listen properly. Do you see? That makes a certain kind of sense. That's why the NIV, which I'm reading from, has, but my ears you have opened. And in fact, that language is actually used of the suffering servant in Isaiah. It's a different verb, but exactly the same idea. Here's Isaiah chapter 50, one of the great servant songs. The servant of God who ultimately is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, says, Isaiah 50, verse 4, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. In other words, his ear is dug out. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears 
I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. So do you see what is being said? To put it in Christian terms, the reason Jesus goes to the cross is because the Lord had opened his ears. And as a result, he cries in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, this expression to have your ears open or to have your ears dug out becomes becomes a way of referring to your willingness to do what you have been told by the master himself. So maybe that's what David is saying. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Because you have opened my ears, I realize burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. I desire to do your will. That's the result of a heart whose ears have been opened by God. But some of you will also remember that these verses are quoted in the New Testament. And there's another layer of understanding that we must grasp to see what's going on. Now, the Old Testament, as you know, was mostly written in Hebrew. And then it was translated into Greek. And then it was quoted in the New Testament, sometimes from the Hebrew and sometimes from the Greek. And once in a while, not very often, but once in a while, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament in the Greek. We call it the Septuagint. And you can't figure out how it relates to the original. You can't figure out how it relates to the Hebrew. Do you know what the Greek translation of this is? Instead of saying sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened, it says sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And you think, whoa, how do you get that? Let, let me g- give an example. There are quite a few people in this room, I'm sure, who are bilingual. And in our family, we were brought up bilingually. It was part of the advantage of living in Quebec. I was born in Montreal, but raised dans les cantons de l'Est, the eastern townships. So inevitably, I was brought up with both languages. Now, <clears throat> I've just cleared my throat because I have a frog in my throat. French Canadians don't have frogs in their throats. They have cats. J'ai le chat dans la gorge. Now, if you think it's funny for them to have cats in their throats, believe me, they think it's funny for you to have frogs in yours. And that's just typical of translation problems. Now, supposing you've got a manuscript with the words, he had a cat in his throat in French. How are you going to translate it into English? Well, you got two choices, basically. You could translate it literally. He had a cat in the throat, in which case the English readers are going to say, boy, this is a screwball writer. I mean, doesn't know how to write English, that's for sure. I mean, what's he doing with a cat in his throat? Everybody knows it's supposed to be a frog. Do you know? So in other words, you could translate it literally, but it really becomes very unnatural. Or you could translate it and transpose frog and cat because now you're looking for the similar English idiom. Okay, fair enough. Now you've got a frog in your throat. But suppose that in the original document in French, there's some theological connection with the word cat. Now you've got a bigger problem in translation, don't you? What do you do then? Oh, translators have all kinds of devices. They, they, they put cat and then a little star, a footnote cue, and look down at the bottom of the page. Well, it says cat, but it's like our idiom for frog, but, uh, but we use cat because cat in the original has some theological connection we don't want to lose. Or you, you translate frog up there, and then you look down at the bottom of the page. Actually, the text says cat. And, and, and all these explanations to try to, to, to get you to understand what's going on in the translator's mind. Now, I can't prove this. But I suspect the Septuagintal translator, that is, the translator who is turning this Hebrew into Greek, a couple of centuries before Christ, he comes to this expression, he says, but my ears you have dug out. Thinks to himself, I think I understand this, but nobody else will. I mean, this doesn't make much sense in English. Nobody goes around digging ears. So he says, um, well, what it means is... um, I become, I become so much the Lord's person, I, 
I, I become his slave. Maybe it's the ear piercing ceremony, or maybe it's I listen perfectly now because my ears have dug out. I I, I give myself up to him. It's, it's as if my whole body is now his. Did you, did you see? And so he renders it, but a body you have prepared for me. And actually, that's not bad. That brings us back to Romans 12. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Now come to the passage in the New Testament where this is quoted, and this with reference to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer to the Hebrews has been arguing that the Old Testament sacrificial system does not finally deal with sin. It can't. It points forward to the ultimate sacrifice. Indeed, chapter 10, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, that is, at the first Christmas, when the incarnation takes place, he said... Now he quotes these lines from Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Now how can Jesus take these words that are part of David's testimony and apply them to himself and talk about the incarnation? But when you stop to think about it, it's not so difficult after all. We're already familiar, those of us who have been reading our Bibles a long time, to the fact that the Bible develops across the Old Testament many, let's call them trajectories, many traces out of a certain kind of design. Some people call them types. So, for example, you have that first Passover meal when the Jews escaped from slavery in Egypt and um, they ate the Passover together and daubed the blood of the lamb on the two doorposts and the lintel, and the destroying angel of death passed over that home. And year after year after year, they celebrated the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. Year after year, century after century, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. Looking back, but ultimately, it is such a trajectory through the Old Testament that you finally ask yourself, so where is it going? Paul understands. He says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us in 1 Corinthians. That is, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Passover lamb, is Jesus himself, who by his death bears God's wrath that should have come to us, and as a result, destruction passes over God's people. And then there's the Day of Atonement. It points forward. In various ways. The the temple points forward to the time when Jesus himself says, destroy this temple. And in three days I'll raise it up. Because the ultimate meeting place between God and human beings is not a hunk of masonry in Jerusalem. The ultimate meeting place between God and human beings is Jesus himself. That's why he's the ultimate temple. Do, Do you see? All of these trajectories that point forward to Jesus. And one of the greatest of these trajectories is David. So much of what takes place in David's life is a kind of anticipation of great David's greater son. So many of the things that take place in David's life point forward to the ultimate David. In other words, when the Old Testament creates its prophecies, sometimes these prophecies are in verbal predictions that ultimately take place in events. But sometimes, in the majority of cases, the Old Testament prophecies are structured not as simple verbal predictions, but as trajectories, patterns of persons and places and institutions and things that ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus the Supreme Temple, in Jesus the Supreme Sacrifice of Yom Kippur, in Jesus the Supreme Passover, in Jesus the Supreme Priest, in Jesus the Supreme King, in Jesus the Supreme Prophet, in Jesus the Supreme Word of God, in Jesus the Supreme David. Jesus in the Gospels regularly indicates that he knows full well he's the ultimate David. So he takes David's words on his own lips 
And he says, sacrifice an offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. I've come to do your will. Because you see, the ultimate obedience of Christ Jesus is coming from the realms of glory in the incarnation and then all the way to the cross leading him to cry as he does at Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. The most fundamental reason why Jesus goes to the cross is not to save us from our sins, but to obey his Father. Now, the will of his Father is that he should die to save us from our sins. But it's not as if all of the attraction is, Jesus loves me so much, he's going to save me from our sin. No, the ultimate attraction for Jesus is toward his heavenly Father. He is going to do the Father's will. However ugly and repugnant the cross is to him, not my will but yours be done. For Jesus is the ultimate David, the ultimate obedient son with his ears dug out, so much so that he offers himself, his whole body, to God. And now, this side of the cross and resurrection, in a lesser way, but still important way, Paul tells us we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Christ. So, we begin with personal testimony. Then we have personal public, uh, public principle, rather, and now personal self-dedication. Now, in one sense, the perfection of David's response could never be managed by David himself in his own lifetime, but it is perfectly managed by Christ in his own lifetime. And the section ends with public proclamation in verses 9 and 10. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. When he says, I do not do this, I do not seal my lips. What he means is, I open my lips. This is a figure of speech in which you affirm something by denying the opposite. How many people were at the banquet last night? Oh, not a few, by which you mean quite a lot. Did you see? You deny the opposite in order to affirm something. So what I don't do is seal my lips, which means I open my mouth and talk. What I don't do is keep my mouth shut. I talk about God's goodness. Here is the principle of public testimony. Now, I know that this is somewhat culture-laden. I was thinking to myself as I sat in that pew listening to the singing. One of the things I like about a church in a metropolitan area is the mix of races and backgrounds and cultures and languages and accents. But, but you know, there are some churches that are a lot more enthusiastic than this one. And some churches that are a lot less. But so some of those things are dictated in part by culture, are they not? So you, you get somebody from good English reserved stock, stiff upper lip, don't let it hang out, you know. And, and, and then that person goes through trouble. His wife dies. He gets fired from his job. His house burns down, and his dog dies. How's it going, brother? Things could be better. Now, it might be trusting God. It might just be British. Then a few years later, you know, he's remarried very happily, built another house, got a great job, and a border collie dog. How's it going, brother? Lots to thank God for. You, you want to say, is there any, any life in there? To, to, to know? <laughs> On the other hand, there are people of a different sort of temperament. Maybe, maybe Italian. Dare I get personal? I've been to some tribes in Africa that are pretty enthusiastic too. And then add a bit of charismatic enthusiasm on top. How's it going, brother? Oh, I've had a terrible cold. I was on death's door. I was so sick and I prayed and the Lord delivered me. Praise Jesus. And I want to say, buy a box of Kleenex. 
See, some of this stuff is cultural, isn't it? Do you know? I, I, I understand that. And I'm not trying to impose a certain kind of uniformity of culture. But somewhere along the line, Christians have the obligation to give public testimony to the grace of God in their lives. And it is especially important for older Christians to do that so that they can show younger Christians how to do it. With, on the one hand, a certain kind of enthusiasm and gratitude, and on the other hand, a certain kind of dignity of truth-telling. That's exactly what David does here, do you see? He's had this experience of grace, and now he says, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. Now, don't misunderstand that passage. There's a sense in which we're not to hide. We are to hide God's righteousness in our hearts. But what he means by this is, I don't hide it to keep it private. I talk about it. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving love. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. There is a place in the congregation of the people of God to talk about the goodness of God. It's part of the right response to the grace of God in our lives. Let me tell you about a chap, we'll call him Mike. Mike, quite a number of years ago, went out as a missionary to Bolivia. He was six foot four, skinny as a beanpole, went out single, and um, learned Spanish well. Why the Lord sends six foot four beanpoles to Bolivia, where everybody's about this high, I'm not sure, but, but that's what the Lord does. He became really quite effective. And um, eventually, on the mission field, he met a single missionary woman. And they were married, rather later than normal. And uh, they had uh, a, a little girl. So at the time the story begins, the girl was about three and a half. And the mission agency, seeing how effective Mike was, sent him back to Trinity, where I teach, um, so that he could get a Ph.D. in biblical studies because they saw that he had great ability to teach and with the extra training he would be more useful on the mission field teaching in Spanish and, and, and raising up a whole new generation of Bolivian pastors, do you see? So he came to Trinity to do his Ph.D. Six months into it, his wife was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. We stepped away from the program and she had a double mastectomy and chemo and was pretty gruesome. But the church rallied around and came from a Christian family. Family members rallied around. The mission rallied around. The seminary rallied around. And after eight or nine months, when they were through the worst of it, uh, he started picking up his PhD program again. Six months later, he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. Now, Chicago has a lot of great cancer hospitals. But they said, hey, this is terminal, nothing we can do for you. The mission decided to send him up to the Mayo Clinic, just the same. And they said, we can't promise anything, but we're prepared to take out most of your stomach and give you some, they're actually colon cancer drugs. They may, they may work, they may not. They took out 90% of his stomach, which meant thereafter he ought to eat often but little. And after eight or nine gruesome months, in which he had lost even more weight, he came back to Trinity, working on his PhD, got another six months done. And then his wife's cancer came back. He dropped out of the program again. And his wife died. After a period of time, he came back to Trinity, finished his PhD. The last time I saw him, he was speaking at our church with his nine-and-a-half-year-old daughter. They were about to go back to Bolivia. He was going back to Bolivia with his Ph.D. and his nine-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And when he spoke in our church for 40 minutes, he had his text. But mostly he was talking about the sheer goodness of God in his life. And I tell you, that is merely normal Christianity. 
Anything less is subnormal. Now that's the first division in the psalm. There is a second division, but we will treat it very, very quickly indeed. The first division is joyful praise to the God who helps with those four points. But then, in verses 11 to 17, renewed anticipation of the God who helps. You see, trouble is still around. Some people think that because they've faced one really severe crisis in their lives, therefore they should be exempt from all further crises. Live long enough and that one will get knocked out of you. Just because you've had cancer doesn't mean you won't face Alzheimer's. Just because you've been divorced and suffered a lot doesn't mean that you won't face cancer. Just because you've lost your job doesn't mean that you won't face heart trouble. Did you see? We are born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. Some people are are blessed to face relatively little trouble, but sooner or later, if you live long enough, it'll come to you, and then it'll come to you again, and and eventually you die. That's my cheerful thought for the day. (laughs) But historically, that's why the church has always been, at its best, the place where people are taught to die well. The church is not primarily to tell you how to bring up your children well, though it does some of that. It's primarily to tell you how to face God. And it's all about the grace of God in the gospel. David is realistic enough to recognize that although he has been spared from this miry bog, whatever it is, And although he has committed himself wholeheartedly to God now with his ears dug open, and although he's publicly proclaiming the grace of God in the great assembly, yet trouble is never too far away. So he switches gears entirely and he goes on to say, verse 11, Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. In other words, this does not mean that verses 1 to 10 are faked. Rather, David recognizes that in this broken world, real and wonderful deliverance, glorious as it may be, is not final. Final deliverance comes in the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Until then, there will be more sorrows. We continue to need help. And likewise in the church, so you've reached 100 years. I'll bet if it were another sort of meeting, you could look back at quite a number of really severe troubled times in the history of the church, too. And if the Lord spares you another hundred years, I'm here to tell you, you're going to face a lot more troubles and more glory. Did you see? It is a broken world, and we will continue to need the grace of God. And so what you find in the closing verses are the domains in which David recognizes he's going to need help. God helps us in the arena of personal sin. Verse 12. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. I think here he's actually returning to the miry bog metaphor. He is sunk so low in the miry bog that he's drowning in his troubles. And his troubles, he says, are his own sins. He, he, he can't even see over his own sins. He's drowning in his own sin. And he's a believer. He's a man after God's own heart. I don't know when he wrote this. He might have written it after the Bathsheba episode. Do you ever feel as you get closer to the holiness of God that you're drowning in your own guilt and dirt? In fact, I don't think Christians can really learn all that much about the love and grace and forgiveness of God unless they get clarified vision of their own sin, the darkness of their own hearts. If you never have really any deep experience of the sheer filth of your own heart, you have not thought deeply about the holiness of God. So you will not think deeply about the love of Christ. David's been there. God helps in the arena of personal sin. He's drowning in his own sense of guilt. Help me here, Lord. 
Then God helps in the arena of bitter enemies, verses 13 to 15. They do not have the right to take advantage of his fall. So although his own sin discourages David, the smug attacks of his enemies arouse in him a sense of injustice. And so he asks God to help him there, too. And number three, God helps all who seek him. That is, all who seek God's glory, verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. It's just two words in Hebrew. Write them out. Yigdal Yahweh. Just the way it sounds. Yigdal Yahweh. Put them on your refrigerator. Put them on the mirror of the the, the bathroom. Yigdal Yahweh. You could render it, the Lord is great, or may the Lord be exalted. So that in the midst of the slime, in the midst of the defeat, in the midst of the discouragement, Yigdal Yahweh, Yigdal Yahweh, may the Lord be exalted. The Lord is great. For what this does is take our vision off ourselves and our own narrow little valley of tears and remind us that God is still the one who helps his people, who forgives their sins, who promises glory yet to come and adds all needed grace for the burdens of this day and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until Jesus returns. Yigdal Yahweh. To compare what I am with what God is is a steadying thing. To pray for God's glory becomes a kind of liberation. It's the way of victory. And finally, verse 17, God helps even me. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Let us pray. In truth, Lord God, we need your grace day by day in a thousand ways. In small, day-by-day challenges. But we need your grace also in the great crises of life that we face sooner or later. Oh, forbid that anyone in this building should face such crises and look to themselves alone for help instead of turning to you to whom David bears such eloquent testimony. We thank you especially that David points to great David's greater son, whose perfect self-sacrifice, whose perfect obedience, whose perfect hearing of the will of his heavenly Father, whose perfect offering of himself means that we poor sinners may be forgiven. So we pray for clarified vision for all of us who name the name of Christ. And for some for whom these things still seem very alien. Grant, Lord God, the seedling of faith in their hearts so that where they sit, they too cry, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. For Jesus' sake. Amen.